the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. This evening, we're drawing to a close our series based in Amos entitled Let Justice Flow. Over the past seven Sunday evenings, we've immersed ourselves in the story of an unjust society being challenged to reconsider their actions and their attitudes by Amos, one of God's chosen mouthpieces, a prophet from Tekoa in Judah. Now, just for a moment before we consider the final chapter of the book, I'd like us to think about our journey over the past few weeks. I'm going to include on the screen both a key verse and a key idea from each of the previous talks. So, where have we been? Well, our journey started in chapter 1, where we were introduced to a God who is neither distant nor silent when it comes to the injustices that mar his creation. God, the lion, roars against injustice. And then in chapter 2, we discovered that the focus of God's roar was in majority upon his own people, the people whom he had chosen to be a light to the nations, not like the nations. But... As we went on to read in chapter 4, the people of Israel had chosen religion over relationship. They were paying lip service to God instead of walking with him. They were ignoring him, despite the threat of judgment. Yet, says the prophet, there is still time to return to God. As we read in chapter 5, God's justice comes with the abundant provision of both his mercy and his grace. But as the remainder of the same chapter makes clear, the people's religiosity won't prevent the onslaught of God's justice. It's rather like a river in full flow. It's unstoppable. The people's complacency, their pursuit of wealth and comfort, had led them to ignore the plight of the poor and the disadvantaged. And whilst the prophet pleads again with them to listen, even the priest in Israel refuses to hear God's word. So Amos's warning is a dire one. The people's refusal to listen will result in God's silence. Which brings us to the final chapter of the book and the final talk in this series, which we've entitled What Hope Has the World? Now, right at the start of this series, we spoke about the various cries for justice that we hear voiced around our world today. Uh, this, if you remember, was the, the brief summary of the series. This is what uh, it says on our teaching card. Over recent years, there have been several cries for justice in our world, whether race, gender-related, social or economic. God's prophets are amongst the most powerful and effective voices ever heard for keeping religion honest, humble, compassionate and just. Among those prophets, Amos stands out as the defender of the poor and the accuser of the powerful rich, those who use God's name to legitimise their self-serving religiosity. The book of Amos calls God's people to return to true worship, centred on justice, a message as relevant today as it was when first written. And yet, despite the relevance of the message of Amos, we know just by scrolling down through our daily news feeds that in majority, the multiplicity of cries for justice and mercy go unheeded. But if there's one message I think we should and can take away from the book of Amos, it's that realisation that we need to first look inside ourselves before looking for outside causes of injustice. God's itinerant prophet, you'll remember Amos, travelled north from Judah to Israel with a message that was both direct and personal. As it turned out, it was a message primarily for God's own people in Israel, not 
for those of the nations who surrounded them. Injustice doesn't only happen out there. It also happens in here. And the lion still roars. And God's people, as we've discovered during this series, had their eyes fixed on three things, on security, prosperity and comfort. And we might well argue, of course, that those things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, and they're not. And yet, if they become the only things we live for, then the pursuit of them becomes a seedbed for injustice. Which brings us back to the question that forms the title for this evening. Since whether or not there is hope for the world relies fundamentally on where we are looking to find it. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who spent the majority of his life fighting the injustices inherent in the apartheid system in South Africa, in his book No Future Without Forgiveness, wrote this. Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. But that begs a question. Where is it? In which direction are we looking to find that light? The people in Israel during the time of Amos were very inward looking. They were, they were thinking that their hope rested within themselves. In the early part of this chapter, Amos is, is very keen to dispel the people's reliance on self. So firstly for this evening, firstly he says, there is no hope in self-fulfillment. The people of God in the verses that we have read uh, place their hope in the wrong things. The fact is that where we choose to place our hope provides the impetus and the direction for the whole of our lives. Our lives, whether we know it or not, are shaped by hope. So if we make security, prosperity and comfort the sole focus of our lives, what then will be the result when those ambitions are not met? Well, Amos' prophecy answers that question. Those with power and influence within Israel, the ruling elite, had chosen security, prosperity and comfort as their ultimate sources of hope. And they were prepared to do whatever it took to pursue those goals. As a result, life for them was one long road towards self-fulfillment and it didn't matter one bit who got trampled on in the process. And the evidence supporting this drive for self-fulfillment had been overwhelming. In chapter 4, we read about the wives of the civic leaders oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. In chapter 5, we read about those with power and influence building stone mansions for themselves, whilst at the same time levying increased taxation on the poor in order to pay for their excesses. So here was a society marred by systemic injustice, and in response, God roars. I notice right at the start of our reading in chapter 9, the form of God's pronouncement on judgment has actually changed. There's no, no dialogue or narrative. Whereas previously in the book we'd been invited to, to listen in on conversations between God and Amos, now there is, is simply a verbatim account of God's words. Amos writes, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, chapter 9, verse 1. And now, of course, the phrase, I saw the Lord, is a familiar one. For centuries, people, God's people believe that God dwelt in the place of worship. They experienced God's presence in the fire and the cloud during their wilderness years. And they recognised God's presence with them in the tabernacle that they carried with them. But the irony here at the start of chapter 9 is that God stands again in the place of worship, despite the fact that the people had refused him. Uh, back in chapter 7, Amaziah, the priest of Israel, had rejected Amos's message and in fact had thrown him out of the sanctuary. This is what it says. 
Amos chapter 7 then, Amaziah said to Amos, get out you seer, go back to the land of Judah, earn your bread there and do your prophesying there, don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Yet, even in the place of rejection, God appears. And that's a theme, isn't it, that we see supremely fulfilled in the ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus. But the message is very stark at the beginning of chapter 9. Look at the first four verses that we read. God says, there is no security in human achievement. Even the grandest buildings will fall. There's no security in rule keeping and pious living. Even religious institutions will crumble. There is no safety in the natural world since nowhere is outside of God's reach or his sovereignty because he is the creator. And there is no security in political power either. Since the people who they think are friends, those nations who surround them, will actually be those who will assist in eventually leading the people into exile by their enemies. God sees and acts, the lion roars. But we also see in these verses that there is no hope in self-justification. Look again at uh, what Amos says. Notice how God's people respond to the threat of judgment. They try to deal with it on their own with no consideration of God. They look to themselves. They try to hide, assuming that God doesn't see their attitudes and their actions. Notice also that they try to rise above their sinfulness to justify themselves, seeking to excuse the injustices that they have meted out on others. But says Amos in uh, verse 2, the second part of verse 2 of Amos 9, though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. No amount of self-aggrandizement and self-justification can cover up their injustices and their rebellion against God. And in the following verses, God reminds the people of his majesty. He is the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Now, some commentators take the view that verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9 may well have been an ancient hymn. And whilst in majority hymn-like passages in scripture, like those we find in the Psalms, are used to remind the people of the closeness of their relationship with God, Amos now subverts the form. The language is a poignant reminder of everything that the people have lost. They've ignored the true worship of God and their status as the chosen people of God has suffered almost beyond repair. God says, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord. God says, if you think you're special, think again. Now, if we were to turn back in our Bibles, right back to almost the beginning, back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 15, we discover there an example of God's consistent warnings to his people not to follow other gods or be led astray by those things that on the surface look attractive and full of hope. Those things such as security, prosperity and comfort that the people of Amos's day were seeking after. God says, Deuteronomy 6, verse 15, The anger of the Lord your God would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you from the face of the earth. And in a verse of clear consistency with the promise agreement the people had entered into with God way back in the Old Testament, Amos repeats God's words. Verse 8, chapter 9, Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. So that appears to be it. Or is it? 
In one of the most surprising turns of the whole book, Amos suddenly steps away from the expected climax of his prophecy. As we have seen, Amos has been working up towards a terrible end in which God will wipe out the nation. Each subsequent passage that we have read has become clearer and more definite as to the people's fate, as Amos time and time again has given examples of the way that the people have not only refused God's rule, but have also just been awful to the people that they are meant to be looking after. Those injustices that have been meted out that we spoke about earlier. But now in the remainder of verse 8, Amos offers the tiniest hint of reprieve. Yet, he says, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Now, in fact, even our understanding and interpretation of God's pronouncements on injustice requires some re-evaluation here. God isn't indiscriminate or capricious. That isn't what the whole book has been about. There is a very clear purpose to God's action. The picture that's described in verse 9 would have been very familiar to Amos's hearers. The story, if you look at it, the little example he gives is about sifting grain to remove pebbles. And that was a very necessary action. And as the sieve is shaken, the grain falls through and the pebbles are left behind. And the use of this metaphor not only implies that there are impurities to be purged out, the pebbles, but also that there is good grain. Good grain to be safeguarded and preserved. The 15th century German theologian, hymn writer Joachim Neander provides the answer to the question that we've been considering for this evening. An answer that he includes the first line of his well, most well-known hymn, All my hope in God is founded. Listen to the words of the second verse. This is what he writes. Pride of man and earthly glory, sword and crown betray his trust. What with care and toil he buildeth, tower and temple fall to dust. But God's power, hour by hour, is my temple and my tower. And the remainder of our passage just picks up this theme. Whereas the people thought they were building a society that could withstand anything, as echoed in the closing line of verse 10, where the people very arrogantly, very belligerently say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. God, through his prophet, reveals that only what he builds will last. Hope is not found in self-fulfillment, as we mentioned. Hope is not found in self-justification. The light of hope that we seek is only found in God. But notice that Amos doesn't for one moment suggest that disaster won't fall upon the nation. Hope lies on the other side of disaster. Only once the full extent of the coming judgment had been experienced could hope become a possibility. Paula Gooder, uh, writing in her commentary on this passage, puts it like this. The understanding of hope lies at the very heart of faith. Hope is not about escaping misery or being permanently happy. It is knowing that the God in whom we believe, while unfathomable in the present, can be relied upon to bring us beyond disaster into a new and better reality. And this kind of hope, the hope that lies beyond despair, speaks into the reality of our experience, not at, the, not at the level of easy platitudes, but at a much, much deeper level. It speaks from the place of knowing God's love and mercy. This God shines light into darkness. He breathes hope where there is only despair and gives life in the midst of death. And it's 
Only God who can make this possible. Notice in the final few verses how many times we read that personal pronoun I in respect of God's activity. I will restore, I will repair, I will rebuild, I will plant, I will bring my people back. Prosperity will return. But notice that this new prosperity isn't built upon the systemic injustices of a people who pursue security, prosperity and comfort at the expense of others. This new prosperity will come from the very land that the people walk on. Look again at the closing verses. God encourages the people to look ahead to a time when the land will be so prosperous, so fertile, that those attempting to gather in the abundant harvest will still be trying to reap the grain and tread the grapes when it's time to plant a new crop. And notice also that the people will be free. And so here for us today is a picture of God's kingdom, the kingdom we experience as both now and not yet, a place of peace and a place of prosperity. Like God's people then, we look forward in hope to a kingdom of justice and right governance, a place where God's people walk in light and in his grace. And these final verses don't undermine anything that Amos has been saying. They don't negate the message. Amos' message is that God has tried everything within his power to restore his people. It's simply the people's refusal to acknowledge God and recognise their sinfulness that leads to the inevitability of ruin and exile. But this isn't the end of the story. It's simply another staging post in the story of God's people that continues on and on through subsequent centuries until the time of Jesus and beyond to include us as well. So is there hope for the world? Well, the hope for humanity rests fully in Jesus Christ. So how does having this great hope impact upon our hearts and shape our lives today? Well, as I said right at the beginning, there's no place. As I said at the beginning, where we place our hope is of primary importance since it detects the direction of our lives. So if we hope in the God of mercy and justice, then it makes sense that our lives will increasingly reflect his heart as he changes us through the indwelling of his spirit. Paul, writing uh, to the church in Corinth in his second letter, reminds his readers of this, this new reality. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. God is at work in us to restore in us the image of his son. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see in increasing clarity who Jesus is, our desires are being changed so that we care about the things that he care about. We speak like him, we act like him, we live lives full of justice and mercy. And since we have this promise of a now and not yet kingdom, there's no need to trample upon others to get our own way and no need to grasp at things around us because our hope is not in the systems and structures of this world. Which leaves us, I think, with just one question as we wrap up and close this series in the book of Amos. What, if anything, is stopping me, is stopping you, from living lives of love, justice and mercy? Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity of looking into your word. We thank you. Uh, for your prophet, for Amos. We thank you for what he had to say as he just spoke your words to a belligerent people, to a people who had lost sight of you. Heavenly Father, we pray that that wouldn't be us, but instead we would be those who walk close 
to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would have lives that are marked by love, justice and mercy. Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit will be shaping our lives towards that end. Help us to be open. Help us to just have that sense of your spirit at work and be prepared to be the kind of people you want us to be as we reflect your heart, the heart of a God of justice. Heavenly Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.